Welcome to the Hughes of Leadership podcast, where we dive deep into the many prominent aspects of leadership. How does leadership show up in each of us, and how do we seek to have a positive influence on the lives of others? Just like hues vary, so does how we show up as leaders and how we may flex different hues depending on the moment, the task at hand, or the individual or team we're engaging. What hues are you using today, and which will you seek to further develop? I'm your host, DJ Menifee, Chief Enrollment Officer at Susquehanna University, and also the Chief Impact Officer for Menifee Duarte Consulting Group. I look forward to diving into the hues of leadership with our guest. As a reminder, this season is focusing on people of influence, specifically those that have had a major impact on my leadership lens and philosophy. It's a blessing to introduce our guest today. When this episode launches, our guest will have retired after serving 43 years in higher education, 27 years on the college side and 16 years on the secondary school side. They currently serve as the Dean of College Counseling at District 219, overseeing two large public high schools, Niles North and Niles West in the metro area of Chicago. Our guest is also quite the ping pong player, the coach, a mentor, and a friend. Welcome to our show, Jerry Pope. What's up, sir? How you doing? Good morning, DJ. I'm glad you added that part about the ping pong player. I, I think I'm pretty good uh, here at the schools. They call me ping pong Pope. <laughs> Triple P. Our team took uh, first place in state this year, went undefeated. So it's uh, it's been a blessing for me to coach uh, some really great athletes. That's phenomenal. Well, congratulations to you, the coaching staff, uh, and the great players that you had on the team this year. Thank you. I appreciate it. As we know, we always want to make sure we recognize why we have our specific guests on the show today, and and Jerry has, has impacted me and my leadership lens through his willingness to support, you know, initiatives that I was coordinating very, very early in my career, as well as taking it upon himself at times to recommend or nominate me for leadership development opportunities along my journey. I want to thank you for the willingness not only to lift me up and give me opportunity in my career, but for the countless others that you've done that, whether they've been students, whether they've been professionals, regardless of the side of the desk they're in, uh, you've just always taken the opportunity to lift other people up. And so I'm so great that you're coming to share this space with us today. Well, thank you, DJ. I'm uh, I'm thrilled to be part of your podcast. Uh, I've had the opportunity to listen to several of your podcasts, and I always take away gems of uh, knowledge and some amazing people that I'm in awe of. I feel blessed uh, to have crossed paths with you. I still remember you as a, a very young professional. In my mind, you're still a young man <laughs> and I've just gotten older, but, uh, you know, you've inspired me from day one. Uh, I've always, uh, told my family and friends that there are people in life that, uh, give you energy. And there are those that unfortunately drain your energy and you, and, uh, there's several young professionals that I think of that, are, are those uh, individuals that you just uh, feel this uh, amazing energy from and the spirit, and it makes you feel good about the work that you do. And uh, from day one, you've always struck me as the ultimate professional who uh, has values and ethics. And uh, I just, uh, I love being around uh, those kind of people and uh, you, you make my day. So I, I love it when our paths cross and I just wish you were in the Midwest so I would see you more often and your beautiful family. Thank you so much, Jerry, for those, those kind and supportive words. I mean, they mean so much coming from you. Uh, and it was, it was interesting as I was preparing for the conversation this morning, you know, I was like, 
I remember, uh, this will be a quick narrative, but I remember when, you know, I was asked to kind of facilitate a, a program uh, at Ball State University. And it was the first time we were attempting to get some schools from the Chicagoland area. And so, you know, I was told to, to reach out to you to see if we can get um, students from Niles Township to, to attend. And I guess I had given you a call and, and you weren't available at the time. And for whatever reason, I didn't lock in the number in my mind or in my phone. And so I remember when you called back, I was in commute and I didn't turn my music down <laughs> when you were calling. Uh, there was nothing in my mind that said, you know, you don't know who this is. You might want to check and see who it is. So uh, I answered the phone. And uh, the first thing you asked is, is, you know, can you speak to DJ? And then once I acknowledged that it was me and I realized it was probably somebody that was really important and I went to go turn my music down, you you asked the question, you said, are you, are you listening to Jeezy? And I just, I just <laughs> lost it. I was like, he knows who young Jeezy is. I still remember that. I still remember that. Oh, that was great. Yeah, I'm into music. I love music, you know. Yeah, I'll never. I'll ne that was at the very kind of beginning of our our journey together. So I'll, I'll yeah. never forget that. Um, so so listen, audience. Jerry and I had a chance to to connect ahead of our conversation to get a sense of you know the hues that he wanted to walk us through. And you know, Jerry presented a, a framework that is very much looking through these different tiers of leadership. And so I'm looking forward to exploring these these frameworks of leadership today in our conversation. And so. Without further ado, Jerry, we're going to tap into to the first one. And that first cue that you reference is generous leader. And so I'm going to turn the keys over to you, Jerry. Talk to us about what you mean by generous in, in forms of a leader and how that has shown up not only in your career, whether that's uh, in Niles District, whether that's been in your college admissions career or the instances where you've been able to serve on, on boards. Please just shed some light for us. Yeah, I think when um, I refer to the generous leader, I'm sure there's those uh, in your audience that will assume why well, he's talking about pay. <laughs> Show me the money. And I do believe that leaders have a major role in taking care of their team. Right. And especially when I was in college admissions uh, and the dean of admissions, I really fought hard to make sure that my folks were well paid and they had good benefits. Uh, that we were competitive in the field of college admissions. I did not believe in bringing in road warriors, uh, those that you uh, sent out in the road and give them brochures and you burn them out and after two years they're gone. I really believe that you develop young professionals and you develop a team and you keep your team. And that's part of the success of a, a college admissions office that Schools get to know you. They get to know the point person for that school, and it builds the reputation of that university or college. And so, but that's not where I really wanted to go with the generous leader. Um, but I do think that recognizing the importance of taking care of your team financially and being competitive is important. But when I think of a generous leader, I think of a leader being generous in terms of their spirit, in terms of their passion, in terms of uh, their understanding of working with their team, of being generous with their time, uh, being generous with their advice. Uh, my close friends will say I'm a little too generous with my advice. 
<laughs> because sometimes I don't hold back. And sometimes the, the young students that I mentor, I give them a kick in the butt whenever I think they need it uh, to get them back on track. But I think generous in terms of being a mentor, being an advocate, uh, being generous in terms of love and understanding, because everyone's bringing something to the table. I always feel like when I go to work, I have to be at my very best. And if I have things going on in my life that are challenging, very few people would actually know that when I come to work, you know, that this is my day. This is my one day. I'm going to make the best of this day and put my best foot forward. And so but I also realize that you may have members of your team that have some unique challenges going on in their home life. And I need to be aware of that, too, uh, to find that happy balance between a life and work and bring out their best while still recognizing that they may have some uh, challenges at home. And finally, I think generous in terms of sharing in your team's success. I think sometimes you see leaders that take all the credit uh, for themselves uh, when the reality is it was a team to make things successful. And especially if I have a team member who's coming forth with a new initiative that is just phenomenal, I want to recognize that person. I want to give kudos to that person. And I think uh, that we all celebrate when the team uh, does well. Wow. Thank you, Jerry, so much for weighing in. And, and as I'm thinking about some of the threads that I was pulling out, one was kind of that thread of caring, leading with your heart uh, and being open with your heart for the people that you are in a position to collaborate with, to support, to lead. Uh, the other piece is that that mantra. Uh, you know, when I think about somebody like you, who I know cares deeply for me, it's not about me wanting you to share with me what I want to hear. I need you to tell me what I need to hear. And, and sometimes that may show up as a swift kick, um, <laughs> but whatever it, it is and however it shows up, it's what is needed at that time. And so I always think about those that are in my circle and those that I know care about me deeply. They never hesitate to, to share with me their perspective, even if it's not something that's going to, to land lightly on my ears or make me feel good um, because they know they're, they're sharing it with me in terms of trying to be a better version of myself. And so I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, the last one is that notion of sharing credit and thinking about our teams or even in instances when you think about board service and, you know, sometimes where the varying ideas come from throughout the team or maybe it comes from a different uh, board director, always trying to find an opportunity to recognize where that light came from. You know, as a leader, I think that's one of the best opportunities to lift people up is that you are showing them that, that hey, we, we want to recognize you and the way that you want to be recognized, because everybody doesn't want to be acknowledged publicly. But in the way that you want to be recognized, you know, I see you. We see you. We see your greatness. We see your growth um, and we see your difference. We see your variation. And, you know, we all are, are navigating things on a day to day basis. Um, we all have a personal life that is is just a part of who we are. And so, you know, you you brought that thread to light as well, which I'm sure our audience will appreciate in that sense of, you know, hey, there are things that could be pulling on our heartstrings. And, and sometimes we can try our best not to show it. But if we're really in tune with our people uh, or we spend a lot of time with them, or at least we give them the platform to share in that space and they feel like they can share in that space, we'll learn a lot. And, and we That's can be so a, better, a better leader in terms of being flexible and being supportive with them. So I really appreciate you tapping in there. So we're going to transition to number two. 
sticking to these frameworks of leadership, the second huge Jerry is what I would call the empowerment leader. So again, I'm going to turn the keys over to you. Walk us through what you mean by empowerment uh, and then how has that shown up in your work uh, and how do those that you've been in position to lead since that uh, and their day-to-day journeys? So I think it gets back to having a team of professionals. I want to empower them to be a future leader. I want to empower them to be a decision maker. Part of that is me uh, taking a lead in making introductions, establishing connections for my team, helping them with the networking. I was very fortunate uh, as a young uh, admissions counselor that I had a dean of admissions who strongly believed in professional development and strongly believed in the power of our professional organizations, our professional associations. And so as a young admissions person, I got very involved in Illinois ACAC, which eventually led to me serving on a a national committee for NACAC, Uh, eventually led to me serving on the board of directors of NACAC twice, and eventually led to me serving on the board of trustees for the college board. I saw firsthand the, the power of being connected, the power of networking, the power of professional associations. And what my dean saw very early on, I came to appreciate by having young professionals involved in these associations and the professional uh, development, not only are they learning things that they're bringing back to the table to share with your team and help your organization grow, uh, but they're also getting their name out there and they're getting the name of your institution out there. And that's a very powerful thing that people recognize, hey, here is uh, an individual who's also representing an organization that believes in ethical values, much like our organization or our association. And so to me, that was so important to have that professional growth. And so for me, empowerment is helping my team members grow and become young professionals and develop those connections that will help them in their career. At the same time, really empowering them to make decisions. I remember one of my young recruiters was just all over me one time, like, why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? And I'm like, man, where is this coming from? Just trust me, this is how it should go. And he goes, well, you have that sign over your desk that says question authority. (laughs) When I was a young admissions professional, I had that sign. And then, of course, as soon as he brought it up and I was the dean of admissions, I took it down later that day. (laughs) But then I later put it back up because I wanted to hire good people on my team that would challenge me, that would question me. Why are we doing it this way? Or is is there a better way of doing it? Uh, And at the same time, empowering my team members, and even empowering people around me that may be on other teams to have difficult conversations. There's nothing wrong with difficult conversations. It helps us grow. And I think at the same time, uh, being uh, respectful and you can be diplomatic. And I I have a great example where I empowered one of my young team members. Uh, We had regional dinners throughout the United States. 
uh, to promote our and market our university. And uh, this young man was in charge of St. Louis. And it's like, we need to do a regional dinner down there. And uh, here are some of the details. Here's your budget. Let me know if you have any questions. And he had attended some of our regional dinners. So he found a great Italian restaurant. And basically, I said, I love Italian food and Mexican food. <laughs> you know, so when you're the dean, you get to call your favorite foods. So he found a great Italian restaurant down in uh, St. Louis. And he was having 60 people. I was like, wow, I'm really impressed. You know, we're going wine and dine, 60 high school counselors and really promote our school. We get down there and um, I go into the restaurant and it's like, wow, this is a really nice restaurant. Uh, I'm amazed he was able to come under budget. And I'm like, where's the banquet room? There was no banquet room. Our tables were in the middle of the restaurant, along with all the other customers and and they had a busy bar and it was a noisy restaurant. And I'm like, you didn't get us a private room? And right then he realized his error. He's like, I didn't even think of it. The restaurant didn't have a private room. There were no private rooms for this restaurant. So I'm, I'm one of those guys, how can we make the best of any situation? And I told the manager of the restaurant what I was planning to do, that uh, once we had our meals, um, serve that uh, a few minutes into it, I was going to stand up and announce to the whole restaurant, drinks are on me if you give me 10 minutes of your, and he was cool with that. And basically half the restaurant was my group. And it was a little awkward at first, but I just stood up and I said, hey, I want everybody to know I'll buy the next two rounds for everybody here. But here's the deal. I got a group of people. We thought we had a private room. We don't. I need just 10 minutes it turned out to be incredibly successful because normally we would have loved to have more time, but uh, the 10 minutes, we did a great promo and the school counselors had a lot of opportunity to socialize, which they really loved. I mingled from table to table and so did my uh, admission counselor. And then uh, the people in the restaurant later that were not associated with our group came up and wanted business cards and information about our university. We had a record year that year in St. Louis because the word spread very quickly. And I'm like, I, I would never do it again. I want a private dining room. But, uh, but, but the nice thing about empowering your people, and this is one of the reasons why it's sometimes difficult to hang on to good admissions professionals. When you empower them, you know, they're getting into time management. They're getting into event planning. Uh, they're doing the marketing. They're doing the public relations. They're doing the communications. The things that we teach our young professionals make them very successful candidates for almost any other job. And so, uh, but I'm big into um, empowering people. I want to have great discussions. I want them to challenge me as a leader. And so that's where I'm, I'm thinking of the empowerment uh, leader and how he can help his team. And I'm happy to say a lot of my team members went on to become admissions professionals at other universities and some transitioned like I did to the high school side as well and became administrators and so on. So it's been kind of cool to see. Yeah, I, I so appreciate just the various directions you took that under the auspice of empowerment and how that shows up. And also in terms of some of the specific pieces that that really hit home for me in terms of what I see in my leadership and, and some of the conversations I've been blessed to have with my team. And so, you know, the first light I want to bring is 
this notion of, of brand champion or brand ambassadors. Um, you know, I think we're in this unique industry where, you know, the professionals that we tend to spend time with and we tend to see on the road at conferences and, and otherwise, you know, we are the champions for our universities. And so whether that's being interviewed for the Chronicle or inside higher ed, whether that's serving on a panel, whether that's presenting at a conference, whether it's being blessed to serve on uh, an association or affiliation board, all of those things, while it is development and opportunity for the individual, as you reference each time it happens, the association to the university is always there. And so we are always, always representing for the institution. Another piece that you brought up that I really love is this notion of navigating and trying to educate and shape people and their ability to have difficult or uncomfortable conversations. You know, whether it's been at my time at my, my previous institution or the time that I've been here at Susquehanna, there's there's been a lot of opportunities or instances where, you know, there's dialogue about, hey, this here's a recommendation on how to have some of these difficult conversations or uncomfortable conversations. We're not always going to agree. Um, there are a lot of instances where what's really charging us is our feelings, the emotion behind things and and communicating to people it's OK to lead with the emotion. Because being emotional in an emotional conversation can bring down the barriers from the other side as you're willing to have the conversation. Uh, I've also shared the notion of, you know, if you're worried that there's going to be difficulty, that that barrier on the other side isn't going to come down. You know, you can start with them first, you know, start with the notion of, hey, we either a, had this recent engagement or we had this recent interaction. We had this recent initiative. Tell me how my behavior or my actions made you feel. You know, let's let's have that conversation. I can sense something in the air and trying to navigate that. Um, and so, you know, that piece is, is really critical for me. And then lastly, you know, the ability to make what I would call mid-game adjustments, right? So your narrative, your story, or the example given was, you know, a professional who, for all intents and purposes, got the type of food right, was in the right community got a great audience um, and, and was hitting, you know, that three for four in any other instance is great in anybody's, anybody's situation. And so as a leader, what you showcase in the narrative that you shared was you didn't come down on the person. You allowed them to see what pivoting looked like, um, what being flexible looked like and what making a mid-game adjustment looks like. And yeah. it ended up working doesn't mean that that's going to be the way you want to do it in the future, right? There's a way to say, okay, yes, we were able to navigate this instance in this way, but I think that's one of those things that whoever that professional is, that that was amongst many other learning experiences that they had an opportunity to see what it looks like where a leader has a decision to make, how they approach uh, a mistake or an instance where something wasn't fully thought out means a lot in terms of that person's ongoing development um, as you experience it. And so I really appreciate you you sharing that. I guess one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Jerry, as a follow-up is, is I know some of these examples have been in the context of, of your time as a dean or your time coming up in the admissions profession, but I'm also mindful that that some of our audience may be those on the secondary school side, right, and, and college counseling offices. What does empowerment look like? And I'm asking because I've never been on the secondary side, but what does that look like when you're leading counseling offices? Uh, and in your instance, it would have been at, at two different schools within your district. You know, what does empowerment look like in that space? 
you know, in both instances with being on the college side and now on the high school side, it is an interesting transitioning from two private colleges to over to a large public school district. And I always uh, felt that every job that I had in my in my first year in that job, I was able to do the, my best job ever because I didn't know what I couldn't do. You know, and so it's like, you know, what is it? Uh, you apologize after the fact, but you get the, the work done. And it's like, so I, I didn't know all the, and especially in a, a large public school district, there's so many procedures and there's state mandates and all that stuff. And it's a little bit overwhelming and there's a, quite a learning curve. But I'm like, man, I got so much done last year, my first year, because I didn't know I couldn't do these things, you know, but the, the empowerment piece, um, what I like to, to say is this, especially with uh, our school counselors and our college and career counselors, I really feel very good about the fact that they're, they're very empowered. Uh, they know that anything that they can do to advocate for kids that they can bring to the leadership and we're going to run with it. And any new initiatives that they have or any um, new programming that they want to do, it's like, let's give it a try. But much like uh, what we did on the college side is what we're doing on the high school side, too, is empowering everybody within the organization. So even like our building and grounds crew and our cafeteria workers and our safety team members know that they play a role in the success of our organization, that every kid should be like their own child. And if you see something where somebody appears down or distressed or depressed uh, to say something, and it's amazing how um, the power of personal connections and the relationship building. I know some of your previous uh, uh, interviewers on their podcasts have talked about this, but it's so important that there are students who only come to school because of ping pong or they only come to school because of their football coach, or they only come to school because of that one teacher that they've connected with. And so the, the personal connections and empowering people to care for others, to know that you have a say in how we run the ship. And if you see something, and it doesn't matter whether you're buildings and grounds or you're on the safety team or your cafeteria worker, if you see something that we can do better or you see ways that we can reach out to kids. And I think uh, because of that, uh, we've learned so much over the years and, and we've uh, really um, established those relationships with every aspect of our, our school district and all the different players that have a, a, a key role, even our family liaisons. We have family liaisons and many of them are interpreters because we have such a variety of foreign languages and they come to us and say, hey, we have some kids in need and um, can you help? And they know that we're there and that's what's uh, powerful. But knowing that I think the big key for us has always been in communicating that everyone has a say in how we run this organization and that your voice is just as important as mine and perhaps more so because you see things in a different way that I may not. And sometimes <laughs> uh, one of the disadvantages of being a leader is that you're in constant meetings. And I really try to get out of the office as much as possible get into the hallways and interact with kids and interact with our staff. And I've always said I'm doing more counseling 
uh, and helping students either over a ping pong table or in the hallway or after school in activity than I am in my own office. It's quite a way to, to put a bow on empowerment uh, in terms <laughs> of highlighting how regardless of the role, regardless of the area in the community, regardless of title or, or structure, level of influence or power, every voice matters uh, in that district. And that's that's very powerful. So we're going to transition to our last hue, Jerry. And that last hue for our listeners is, is the activist leader. Uh, and so again, I'm going to turn the keys over to you. Walk us through what that means and how that has shown up in your life of leadership. I think for as long as I can remember, I, I've been something of an activist and uh, especially an environmental activist at a, when I was a college kid and very concerned about that. And despite all my good work for the environment, no one ever called me an environmental activist. But I, I think uh, hopefully we all are. But I think when I think of an activist leader is oftentimes the phrase, you know, doing the right thing. And oftentimes with college presidents and with uh, district leadership at the high school level, I've always been able to make the argument that this is needed it's doing the right thing. And I remember, I think back when I had a discretionary fund uh, on the college side to fly in qualified candidates from around the United States that may need that additional help. As long as we knew they were qualified, we knew uh, if we could get them to our campus, there, there was a high chance that we could convert them as a student. Beautiful college campuses and just like anything, with any organization, you know, getting them there and seeing what you have to offer. So I had this young man who was a Native American student from Idaho that I kind of overwent uh, on the budget flying this student into our campus because it was a puddle jumper after a puddle jumper, one little airport to another, another, finally get him to our campus. And while the my college president was very supportive of me having a discretionary fund, I had my own internal guidelines as to how much to spend on each student. I clearly overspent on this student trying to get him to our campus. Uh, but here was a Native American student, a young man who wanted a major in nursing. And my school had a great or my college had a great school of nursing. He flew in, loved the campus, committed to my school. The president eventually <laughs> the president of the school eventually saw the budget, what it cost to fly this kid in. And he was uh, obviously a high need student. We were spending a small fortune on meeting his total financial need. The president was a little irate, thought I kind of went overboard on helping this one individual student. And it was later that uh, summer before he enrolled that he was named one of the first Gates scholarships winner in the nation. And especially that first year and all the press that came out about it, and you had all these Ivy League schools. And then my little college was mentioned along with this young man. The press that we got from that was phenomenal. And the president said, you know, it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. And fast forward a few years later, uh, there was a young man that I was trying to admit from the city of Chicago, who we had found was a former gangbanger and had been homeless for the last six years living in an abandoned car. And his grades were phenomenal. He was a straight A student because his whole time while he was homeless, he was camped out at the local library and oftentimes would hide out at night and spend the night in there. His test scores were off the charts the other way. 
And at the time, my college required test scores and required GPA and had these strict guidelines. And students that were clearly admissible as a dean, I could admit, students that weren't clearly admissible had to go before an admissions committee. Despite my best efforts to get this kid accepted, the admissions committee said no based on his test scores. Two weeks later, I reconvened the admissions committee when I knew that several people who voted against me would be out of town. This time, <laughs> the young man got accepted. My president later heard about that and was a little irate about it, but I said, I didn't do anything wrong. We still had the vote of the admissions committee, but a four-hour exam on a Saturday morning should not determine this kid's worth. As it was, I went to his graduation ceremony. We brought him to campus. We provided him a summer job and a place to live because he was homeless. It was the right thing to do. And this kid uh, went on to become a Dean's List honor student and went on to get his master's degree, eventually got his PhD, is now a college professor. And that's just really great news uh, to see. And so to me, it's all about an activist leader you still have to remember that you're representing your university or you're still representing our school district. I had to be very careful. One of my uh, first years at the school district, we had uh, immigration uh, detain two of our parents and they were planning to deport the parents along with the student once he turned 18. Well, he was 17 and he was about a month away from turning 18. They wanted to deport him uh, to Russia where he was born, but he his family moved away from Russia when he was an infant and they were political refugees. This family was trying to do everything right by going through our system. They weren't hiding under the radar. They were filing all the proper papers as political refugees. And I told our school district, our superintendent, I go, we need to do something. Uh, ICE uh, immigration was detaining the two parents ready to deport them. They were ready to deport the young man as soon as he turned 18. This young man had just been accepted at major universities across the United States, was, had a perfect ACT score, perfect SAT score, and was top of his class academically. And I said this. <laughs> so I finally got the superintendent to agree that there was going to be a rally downtown with all these other community organizations protesting the detaining of these uh, political refugees. And the, the school had a very careful script that I had to follow. And the script basically was, as a school district, we think it's wrong to split up the family, that it's important to keep the family together. And they were going to send all three of the family members to three different countries, one to Argentina, one to Germany, and one to Russia. It made no sense whatsoever. I probably went a little bit overboard on my activism. I went a little bit off script and said, it's a right thing to do to keep this young man in our school, to keep the family together. And is this not a student that we want to see go to a school here in the United States and give back to our country? It got so much media attention. Immigration dropped and said, we will look at it again in a few months. They never touched it. The family was allowed to stay. The young man went to college and all, all the family members are taxpayers and citizens now and everything else, but we really came close to uh, losing them. So to me, an activist leader is always fighting for equity and access. I was a first generation, low income, uh, rural kid from uh, the country of Illinois. And I was blessed to have a coach who mentored me 
because there's a secret language of going to college that most people that unless your family members went to college, you're not aware of. And so I'm always aware of the secret language, the secret code that a lot of first gen low income underrepresented populations are unaware about. And so we need to fight the good fight in terms of equity and access. I remember I had a senior member of the cabinet at my university. This is my first year as dean after we had a phenomenal year. It took me for a walk around the campus. It's like, Jerry, let's go for a walk. I want to talk to you about a few things. It's like you're having phenomenal success in admissions. There's a concern that you're doing your job too well. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, we're seeing our diversity numbers uh, shoot way up and you're changing the face of what our university is all about. Our university should look like me and you. Well, he was an old white guy. And at the time I was a middle aged white guy. I really made no comments at the time. And he was a member of my admissions committee. And then I, I went back and I looked at the rules and guidelines of my admissions committee and I removed him from the admissions committee. I had a private conversation with the president about it. And if anything, it made me more determined <laughs> to promote equity and access. And I'm happy to say during my tenure there that our number of uh, uh, students of color uh, skyrocketed. Uh, the number of first gen low income students skyrocketed. Uh, we came in under budget and our admissions profile, our academic profile increased. It was a win, win, win. But some people didn't like the change. They had a certain image of what our university should look like. And I'm proud to say, even as a young uh, admissions recruiter, there was many times I would take a school van to Gary and Hammond, Indiana, to the city of Chicago and bring kids down on a Friday night after their sports practices or whatever. And I would have a van full of kids and uh, brought them down for a weekend. And I said, hey, listen, I'm giving you a heads up. Uh, you're going to find yourself in a sea of white faces and you have to decide whether that's going to be comfortable for you. But help me bring in a more diverse class. And you know what you're going to find is that this school is going to help you take that next step up. You're going to have a great experience and you're going to do really well. And I'm happy to say that there's a lot of former students of color now that are doctors and lawyers and CEOs. And uh, one is a chancellor of the city colleges of Chicago. And, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that you have to fight the good fight, you know, and there are people that will be opposed to you uh, doing the right thing. And we're seeing that now in our national politics. I won't go there, but, you know, this is, um, it's a situation where people that are apathetic and sit back and let other people fight the good fight, uh, they're going to wake up one day and find out that the world's not the place they want it to be. And so we have to, I believe in restorative just, justice. I, you know, as a political science major, I think I've always been very diplomatic in my approach. I use my humor to diffuse situations at time, but I'm not afraid of conflict and I'm not afraid of fighting for what I believe is right. And so and I, I know from my board service, too, that there were times when I was on the nominations committee and I said, you know what, there's too many people on this board that looks like me. We we need to give other people the opportunity to be at the table and not just to have a chair at the table, but have a voice at the table and have a vote at the table. You know, <laughs> So I'm happy to say that uh, over the years, I think I've had a, a lot of uh, 
I like to think I've had an impact. I know when I came to our school district here, the first thing I said at our evening programs is that we're going to talk about how undocumented students can go to college. And the next day, and I said to everybody, I'm an undocumented advocate. I will help you. And don't worry, the government's not going to find out anything about you. And the next day, I had a family waiting outside my office. And later that day, they just started coming in because the undocumented community know one another. They started calling up. You got to meet with Pope. You got to meet with Pope. And a lot of those students went on to college and they're doing well. Very excited about the, the opportunity to just get this message out to the audience, whoever the audience may be. You know, it's very inspiring to hear about instances where you were willing to stay in the lane of what was right, uh, not worrying about budget, uh, not um, necessarily being deterred by others' perception of what the university and the profile should look like and continue to stay uh, in that way. And also in the instances of of challenging the status quo of how we have served students, the type of students institutions have attracted, the type of students that we have supported to go to and through college, as well as instances where you're helping contribute to shaping the next generation of leaders, whether it's through admissions, whether it's through um, school counseling or college counseling, or whether it's through board service. I've been in many of those spaces and, and have been blessed to be one of a few at times that that hasn't looked like everybody else and didn't have the same background as everybody else. Uh, And it does require um, hearts like yours, uh, determination like yours, um, and the willingness to navigate adversity in the way that you've been willing to navigate it um, and so many others in our space. And so I'm I'm very excited and, and inspired by that message through the activist lens. And I'm very hopeful that our audience members will be as well, because we never know who's listening. We never know who's who needs that confidence, who needs that support, who needs to know that they're not the only one in a fight, uh, that there are others that don't necessarily have to share their identity and background that'll be willing to fight alongside them. One, I think uh, one of the keys to, uh, and you probably appreciate this, DJ, I think uh, all of us that are trying to fight the good fight, you have to know where the landmines are <laughs> and you have to know who your allies are. And every time I transition, I've only had three jobs in my entire career. They've always been in education. But every time I've transitioned to a new job, it's finding out who your allies are, finding out what the potential landmines are. And again, I think sometimes uh, winning people over, building relationships, establishing connections. And I do believe the, the power of storytelling that, you know, when people know When they hear, here's a young man who was homeless for six years, living on an abandoned car, who was a straight A student who, yeah, despite his test score, you know, being on the low side. Well, yeah, my test score would be on the low side, too, because I'm not taking test prep. I'm fighting for food. I'm fighting for a place to sleep. Why are you looking at that? Why not have some flexibility? At the same time, I was that poor rural kid who ended up having good test scores and a low GPA, (laughs) Because I was working every day after school. Right. And so I wasn't very motivated uh, as a a poor rural kid because I didn't see the future. But my test score actually helped me. So in that case, it kind of balanced out. So um, I think it's all about fighting the good fight, but truly uh, getting a feel for the land and knowing who your allies are. So we will take the the, the notion of, of allies 
and identifying those allies in our transitions or even within the, our places of work our, and, and within our communities as well. And we'll, we'll take that in our transition to our closing. And so, you know, as we get ready to close out on this conversation, Jerry, I have this question that I, I like to ask our, our guests. And it's a question for you thinking about how long you've been a leader, how long you've been a servant-oriented leader, a empowering leader, a generous leader, an activist leader. Are there things you're still being exposed to that are helping shape your leadership anew? Uh, and or is there something that you would be willing to share with the audience that regardless of how long you've been in a leadership role or that you've been able to inspire and lead others, there are still spaces that you are challenged with that you're still trying to develop and grow as well? <laughs> Yeah, all my, all my close friends will say I'm I'm challenged with technology. <laughs> I'll be the first to admit that. I'm very old school. In fact, when I started in admissions and became the dean, I had a secretary who uh, actually did dictation for me. And, you know, it's nice when you have people that can pull data for you and do all the technical stuff and you just benefit from that. And now it's like everybody's expected to do it themselves. And that's been a little challenging. But I, I will say... Uh, a case where I was humbled uh, was my transition from the college side to the high school side. Uh, I was very fortunate that there were key players uh, in the school district, the superintendent, the assistant superintendent, one of the principals that created a position for me. And it was very new at the time. They were creating a position as a district leader overseeing uh, college and careers. And at the time, we were the only the second school district in the nation doing it. Uh, before that, we were only aware of the L.A. school district doing it. Well, I got to admit, after spending at that time, I was 27 years on the college admission side. I felt pretty confident in my ability. You know, I I had a lot of success and I'm like, wow, the school district's bringing me in to share my success. And I was actually astonished at how little I knew <laughs> when I transitioned from the high school side, from the college side to the high school side, how little I knew. Man, I thought I knew it all. And I thought, hey, they're going to see me as this rock star. And they bring me in as kind of this outside consultant. And I think everybody initially was very suspicious of me, you know, and why are you here and what are you doing and all that stuff. And um, the learning curve was great. And just like I had mentors throughout my life, I very quickly realized I needed a few mentors here. And I had uh, one of the principals who mentored me uh, at one of the high schools and then one of the school counselors. Uh, and it was an older school counselor who had seen everything under the sun. And boy, he really helped me. And the, the thing is, when you transition to a new place too, the acronyms, I mean, I'm sitting in a meetings and I'm, I come out of there with a headache. I have no clue what they're talking about. And sometimes you're looking at me for advice and I'm just kind of shaking my head. And I, I finally realized I had to be honest. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and then again, all the state mandates and everything else. So it was very humbling. And I had to really get up to speed and read, read, read and learn so much about school counseling and um, and becoming a, a school leader and a, a, an administrative leader at our district. But I will tell you this, out of it came such a great respect for the good work that our teachers and our school counselors and our staff and our admin, 
are doing. They're really putting their best foot forward and they're fighting the good fight. And I've always said this, that school counselors go so underappreciated because they do so much work and helping kids in so many ways that very few people will ever see. Because the very nature of school counseling, you don't talk about it. You don't brag about it. You don't put it out there. You're quietly helping kids every day in some very difficult situations to help them get ahead. And no one knows. And it's the very nature of the business. And uh, I do love that. And, and very quickly, you get good at reading kids. I always worry about the kid who's walking down the hallway with his head down. And those are the kids I try to reach out to the most. And again, establishing those connections and making them feel like uh, this is their second home and that they're welcome here and they have a place here and that we want the best for them. So, uh, yeah, my transition from the college side to the high school side (laughs) was very humbling (laughs) and it really uh, was a wake up call about how little I I knew and how much I had to get up to speed. And uh, I I will say I love it. I've enjoyed my entire career on the college side and high school side, because I love being around young people and it keeps you young. And one of the reasons why I listen to the music that I do, DJ, and can pick up your song because I try to get a pulse for what the young people are listening to. I don't always like it, but some of it I do. Well, that's quite the, the note to end, not only in just recognizing the type of leader and the type of human being you've been, and to the students, um, to the communities, to the staff, um, those that have been in your care or indirectly impacted by the work and the way in which you see the world, um, very founded in your values. Um, and we very much appreciate that. You know, we also want to make sure that we celebrate you um, because you've had an impactful career. Um, and while we are mindful that when this episode goes live, that, that you will have retired from the 43 years of amazing service, uh, those that know you will also know that you will not be resting on your hands um, and so we look forward to seeing what that next chapter of Jerry's life will look like. Um, we're so thankful for the conversation. We're so thankful for the hues that you've introduced and, and shared with us. And we're so grateful for the, the ongoing impact you will continue to have for students in our space. Thank you, DJ. And my love to you and your family. All the best, buddy. Appreciate it. So to our guests, as you transition to work or home from work, as you head into lunch or transitioning between meetings, And as you transition into professional development time, you may have for yourself each day or each week. And as you transition between the workplace and time with your loved ones, let's reflect and consider incorporating the hues that we've talked about today in our lives. Thanks for tuning in to the Hues of Leadership podcast. And remember to ask yourself, what hues will you use today and which will you seek to further develop? Thank you. Thank you.